Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the former heaven and the former earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Look, God's dwelling is here with humankind. He will dwell with them, and they will be his peoples. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no mourning, crying, or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I'm making all things new. He also said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, all is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will freely give water from the life-giving spring. Those who emerge victorious will inherit these things. I will be their God, and they will be my sons and daughters. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, in true romantic fashion, my wife and I read from Revelation uh, at our wedding. And specifically, this passage from Revelation 21, these exact verses, were read at our wedding. Not the passage about what love is like in 1 Corinthians 13, not a romantic one from the Song of Songs, but one from Revelation. Talk about two seminary students planning a wedding together. In fact, it was the longest wedding bulletin that you have ever seen, complete with communion. We Loved it. Not sure if anyone else did that was attending, but we did, and really that's what mattered on that day. So, why did we use this passage from Revelation at our wedding? Was it because the holy city descends like a bride for her husband, and so we just used that? Well, not exactly. We read it at our wedding because there is something about this ending of Revelation that provides hope for every person. It presents a complete picture of what God is accomplishing and will accomplish even in the midst of an imperfect world. For the end of Revelation is a bookend in the scripture. It wraps the story of the Bible completely up. Even as we have gone through the twists and turns of the entire story of scripture, these final words of Revelation are fitting on Epiphany Sunday. For Epiphany is all about the glory of God being revealed to us in Jesus, about the light that shines into the world. These verses of Revelation are about that light that then shines forever, and they reveal the hope of the future to us today. But wait, many of you have just read Revelation over the last two weeks, and am I saying that we are just going to skip over all of those crazy stories about the four horsemen, the seven seals, beasts with ten horns, dragons being launched into the lakes of sulfur and fire? I mean, isn't the pastor going to tell us what all of this means and exactly who is who and what is what? In a word, no. I'm not going to even attempt to explain all of that to you in this space today. Many people have tried to explain Revelation literally. They take it at face 
value as an exact prediction of what will happen in the future. But since week one of preaching through the Bible, an entire year ago on this day, we began by talking about genre. When talking about the creation stories in week one, I talked about how the Bible is not a science textbook or history even like we read it today. Revelation is a writing style known as apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic was a common style in the biblical times. It would not have seemed so strange to their ears to read this type of literature. The original hearers of Revelation were Christians who were being persecuted for their faith, even to the point of death, likely in the late, late first or early second century. These words of Revelation were meant to encourage these Christians, sometimes in very veiled almost code-like ways. So the whore of Babylon that gets described is likely a symbol for the power of Rome, who at the time was killing Christians in the Colosseum. The Antichrist may have been Nero, the emperor of Rome, who was notably crazy, literally insane. Now, does this mean, when I'm saying these things, that Revelation is not true? No, it simply means that Revelation is not meant to be an exact picture of what is going to happen at the end of time. It is not worth getting in humongous theological fights about when the 1,000-year reign of Christ or the millennium will occur. For Revelation is ultimately about God's victory that has already been won in Christ. And it is a story of hope for those of us who trust in Christ Evil will be judged. Satan will be vanquished. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. So here is what I want to talk about today. How is the end of the story like the beginning? Well, first of all, God is present. In Genesis, we learn that God was walking in the cool of the garden among Adam and Eve. God was with Adam and Eve in the perfection of the Garden of Eden. The picture that we get from that is this. Humanity had perfect communion with God. Creation itself was in right relationship with God. There was communion with God and there was freedom in the midst of this garden. Now in Revelation we see this. Look, God's dwelling is here with humankind. He will dwell with them and they will be his peoples. God himself will be with them as their God. God is present with his peoples forever. There is no brokenness to the communion between God and humanity. It is completely restored. Revelation 22 provides even more depiction to how this holy city and depiction will be. I love its description in verse 5. Night will be no more. They won't need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will shine on them and they will rule forever and always. We are meant in these pictures to get pictures of Israel and their time in the wilderness. In those days, God's dwelling place was a tent, a tabernacle. And in Revelation, God literally comes, it says, to tent or to tabernacle among the people. 
This tent was filled with the presence of God. There was a light that emanated from the tabernacle. When the Israelites would move, do you remember, during the day there was a pillar of cloud that led them, and at night that was a pillar of fire so that they could see the way where they were, and it would come to rest right there at the tabernacle, providing light for all around. When Moses came down from the mountain after speaking with God at Mount Sinai, his, light, his face was so radiant it was shining bright and beaming. So he had to veil his face. All throughout scripture, humans have needed mediators between them and God. Jesus was the foretaste of when mediators won't be needed anymore because Jesus came in flesh and made his tent, tabernacled among us is how John 1 verse 4 says it. The hope of God's constant presence is incredible. Not just for the first hearers of Revelation, but for us. John's vision in Revelation is not just about humans escaping the earth to go and be with God. Rather, the way that John presents it is this. God is descending to a renewed earth to make God's home with us. And when God does that, the next thing we see is this. The curse is taken away. If the end is like the beginning, then something has to be done about the wrong turn that humans took in Genesis 3 and then the road that we have taken ever since. For when humans tried to become equal with God and did the one thing in the garden that God commanded them not to do, the perfect communion with God was broken. Humans were cast out of the garden and life forever became difficult. Weeds and toil with soil began. Pain in childbirth and strain in all relationships began from that point on. The next generation, brothers killing one another. Generations later, the earth is so bad that God has to send the flood upon the earth to destroy everything on it, save Noah and his family and the animals on the ark. A little while later, humans try to build a monument to themselves and attempt to reach God. And that's just about nine chapters into the story. And as the story of scripture continues with the story of the people of Israel, we see always one step forward and two steps back. For every time that Israel tries to follow God, they turn away in mistrust, typically by following idols. Their perfect relationship with God is broken. It seems to be cursed. So these words from the throne in Revelation ring with hope. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no mourning, crying, or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I love reading this passage at funerals because the refrain of a funeral is the same refrain as Easter. Death is not the end. Jesus has all ready one. And the hard part is this. We live in a world where death seems to win. It sure feels like those who are hopeful are on the losing end. How is death defeated when we keep shooting and killing each other? How is pain defeated when pandemics kill off millions of people even with all of our medical advances? Friends, we cannot accomplish the reversal of the curse. Oh, we want to. We want to build the kingdom of God. But here's the thing. It's not our kingdom. It's God's kingdom. This is what we see in the passage today. This new Jerusalem that descends 
is the opposite of the Tower of Babel. Rather than building up the city to God, even like the temple on earth in some ways attempted to do, the new city descends from God to the people. God descends to us. The preacher David Buttrick said it this way. He said, left to our own devices, we'll dream a holy city and build Babel every time. But when God descends and inhabits the holy city in the new heavens and the new earth, the curse of sin is broken. Brokenness is broken. Mourning and crying and pain are no more. These four things, death, mourning, crying, and pain, are part and parcel of this life. We may try to avoid them or numb ourselves to them, but part of the human experience is death, mourning, crying, and pain. And naturally, we don't like those things. We're not supposed to. The promise of death, mourning, crying, and pain being no more is given to us when the writer describes that in this new heaven and new earth, the sea was no more. For in those times, the sea represented chaos and always had the undertones of death. And in the new heavens and the new earth, there is no sea. Instead, there is a river that flows from the throne of God. This river provides life, and on each side of it, it says, there is a tree of life. Now, friends, we haven't seen or heard about a tree of life since since Genesis, the first couple chapters. And I want you to hear these words then, given in Revelation 22. On each side of the river is the tree of life, which produces 12 crops of fruit, bearing its fruit each month. The tree's leaves are for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. There will no longer be any curse. The the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Healing is what we have to look forward to. The end of death and mourning and crying and pain. No more will those things have rain. The end is also like the beginning because of this description of a new creation. The original creation in Genesis was good. You can at least understand that from reading chapter 1, right? After every day, God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the first day, right? And that continues and continues, and then by the sixth day, after God creates humanity, he says, right, it was very good, it was supremely good, right? There are beautiful and awe-inspiring things in our world. There are grand canyons and ocean vistas, and there are tiny, microscopic, amazing things, and there are just plain old pretty bluebirds and sunsets in our non-awe-inspiring neighborhoods. And this good world, this good creation, has been tainted by the curse of sin and death. But the promise of Revelation is this. Look, I am making all things new. All things new. This is a word about restoration. This is a word about resurrection. This is a word about rehabilitation. Notice all of those re-prefixes there. Notice what God does in this verse. It doesn't say God makes all new things. It says rather he makes all things new. In other words, God restores them. God resurrects what is dead. God rehabilitates what is broken. God makes beautiful that which has been broken, bent, and hurt, 
And that includes you and me. That includes all of creation. As Paul proclaims, if anyone is in Christ, that person is part of the new creation. The old things have gone away. Look, new things have arrived. Scholar Michael Mitchell Reddish describes the wonderful hope of God making all things new. He says, the text assures us that suffering and death, which presently wreak havoc not only on humanity but on all of God's creation, will have no place in the new heaven and earth. This text reminds us of something about the nature of God also, he says, which is that the God revealed in the scriptures is opposed to suffering and pain. I want you to hear that. The God revealed in the scriptures is opposed to suffering and pain. Friends, sometimes we act like or we have been told or we think that somehow we deserve the suffering and the pain that comes our way in this life. Or we think that God has brought it upon us. And here's what I want you to hear by these final words in Revelation. is that God, his plan is opposed to suffering and pain. Can God use the suffering and pain that happens in your life? Yes. But that is not the same thing as God bringing it upon you. I need you to hear that. when, When we say things like God is making that happen, we are saying that that is part of the character of God to bring those things upon the world. Friends, so many people have left the faith. They have left church. They have left following Jesus because of bad ideas they have about God causing those things in their life. I need you to hear that and understand that. I need our church to be a beacon of something different, a different way of narrating how God works in the world. That it's not that God is just causing those things like some arbitrary cosmic being in the sky, bringing about bad things in your life to kind of teach you a lesson. That's not how God works. We are so accustomed, however, to the effects of the fall that we have forgotten the goodness of God's creation and that God is opposed to suffering and to pain. When I began this journey with you all 52 weeks ago, the main take-home of the sermon was this. God, in the beginning, God was powerful and God was present. Powerful enough to create out of nothing with simply a word. Present with humans, loving the creation that he made. Here's what I want you to hear today. In the end, God is powerful and God is present. Powerful enough to overcome the forces of death and the mourning and crying and pain that we all face. Present with us, coming to dwell with us forever. And in the in-between, where we are now, we live with the promise of God's full communion with us and the restoration of our relationships with one another. And we, with God's help, try to live as those lights in the midst of darkness. That is what the hope of Revelation is for. God is powerful, and God is present. That's the story of the Bible from beginning to end. Amen.